You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was preached on September 2nd, 2018. A reading from the letter to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we see a lot about something called culture wars in the news. This is what happens anytime we see this this clashing between traditional Christian values and the rising liberal values on things like marriage and gender and sexuality and morality and religion, and the list could go on and on and on. But this makes big headlines frequently because of this clash in values in our culture one side clashing against the other, and it has a warlike feeling to it, which is why we call it culture wars. It can be challenging to discern our proper response in these cultural shifts as Christians. Because on the one hand, we value and believe the truth of the scriptures and the things that we find there. We want to structure our own lives on it, and we feel that these are the values that would be most beneficial for our society. And yet, on the other hand, we don't want to seem hateful in our culture. That's the wrong impression we want to give because Jesus is the face of love and we want to be loving towards those around us. And so how do we navigate these cultural shifts? How do we come into these culture wars and make a difference and change the story and change the conversation in a way that uh, builds people up instead of tearing people down? Well, I think one thing is to remember what we see in Ephesians today. In our uh, passage from Ephesians, we see that our battle is not against groups of people. That's not where the war is for us as Christians. It's not even against our culture. It's against Satan and his demons. And so we read in Ephesians... 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And when we talk about rulers and authorities, we're not talking about government rulers, we're talking about spiritual rulers. And that's where our battle lies. And so even as we look at our culture, even as we look at these shifts in our culture, certainly sometimes we need to stand up and say something and do something, but we don't need to get sucked into the conversation as it is. Because as Christians, we can love people, we can encourage people, we can stand tr- firm in the, tr- the we can excuse me we can stand firm in the truth of God's word without getting sucked into the negative politics that are going on all the time because we know that the real battle that's going on even in these culture wars is a spiritual battle it's not against the people that we disagree with it's not against any group of people at all it's against satan and his demons and so this is a war that needs to be fought Not so much with our words or our actions, but with our prayers. That's the primary source of this battle. There are some ramifications of how we interact in the world. Certainly that comes out of it. We're not negating any of those things. But the primary battle, the primary war that has to be fought is a spiritual war against Satan and his demons. Satan likes to strike confusion and anger and conflict and lots of other things especially when we're doing something that's making great advances for God's kingdom. Because Satan doesn't want God's kingdom to advance. Now, the funny thing about that is we know the end of the story. Satan is not going to win. And so he's fighting a losing battle the whole time, but he's not going to go down quietly. And he wants to take as many people down with him as he possibly can. And so Satan will rage out against the church, especially when Things are happening that advance God's kingdom. Now, before we get into talking about spiritual attack, which I think is very real, we need to just first preface that by saying not everything bad that happens to us is necessarily a spiritual attack. Sometimes we assign these external forces of spiritual attack when really what we're dealing with is our own laziness, our own disorganization, our own... uh, confusion and and our own conflict with other people. And so when we're talking about those things, you're going to do a lot better not to blame it on an external force, but to first look within yourself and see where you are the source of a problem and start there with fixing problems. But there is a reality of spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare. And these are things that happen uh, generally from the outside, pressing in on us, things that make us feel as though Uh, the world is crashing in around us, things that bring conflict and strife. One commentator on this passage says that Satan seeks to alienate humanity from God by disobedience and by ignorance and corrupt thinking. He tries to separate people from each other through the alienating sins of greed, falsehood, anger, and all their other related sins. And so if you think about our culture right now and the polarized nature of our culture, it paints these culture wars in a different light, doesn't it? That there is a spiritual war even as we see the effects of this spiritual war in our physical world. But the war is a spiritual one. 
We also see these types of spiritual warfare in our relationships, chiefly our relationship with God. One of the ways Satan likes to attack us is to distract us from our relationship with God, from those disciplines that help us stay in connection with the one who gives us life, the one who created us. But spiritual attack also comes in the form of disruption of our relationships with each other. When anger and fear and negativity are popping up in our relationships, especially in relationships that are normally not characterized by those things, that could be a spiritual attack. Carrie and I don't often bicker with one another, but every once in a while we find ourselves in these negative spirals of bickering, and when we do, we can often stop and say, what is going on here? And often, it's external spiritual conflict coming in on us. And when we pray, and we seek God together in that situation, the anger and the conflict and the bickering disappear. These are spiritual battles. And the same thing can happen in our relationships in the church. When we're at conflict with one another, when we are warring with one another, when we're bickering with one another, it distracts us from the things that God is calling us to do. It distracts us from moving forward in the mission that he's given us. And when that's the case, Satan feels like he's winning. And so Satan wants to attack those things. He wants to attack those relationships. But our God is a God of peace. And our God is a God of reconciliation. And he wants to draw us together. And that's always going to be the movement of God, drawing people together in him, not sending them apart from each other. And so when that's the case, again, we can stop, we can pray, and we can ask God to intervene and send his demons away from us. Because the beautiful thing is that in Christ, we have authority over those demons. Because he has authority over those demons. And he has given us the authority to send them away in his name. The primary thing to remember here, though, is that Satan is trying to disrupt the mission. Satan is trying to break apart marriages. He's trying to break apart churches. He's trying to do anything he can to keep God's mission of evangelism and drawing people to himself, to keep that from happening. And so you can expect when marriages are coming together, in engaged couples, you can expect when churches are moving forward in mission, you can expect disruption to come in the form of these types of conflict and strife. And when we recognize those things and we pray, we have power over the enemy. It's important to realize, though, that we are not alone and we are not helpless in this situation. It can feel like we have these external factors pressing in on us and we can throw up our arms and feel helpless, but we are anything but helpless in these spiritual wars. Why? Because we have God. We heard in Deuteronomy today this remarkable passage where it says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Think about that. As the people of God, we have God right with us all the time. He is always near to us, and he always hears our prayers when we call out to him. He's always ready to hear us. He's always ready to take action and come to our aid. He's going to direct it. We don't get to direct him. He directs us. But he is always there, right there, ready to help us. 
There's a story that comes to us in the, the second book of Kings, which I think is, uh, is often overlooked, but it's a remarkable story. And it's the story of Elisha. And the king of Israel was often at war with the king of Syria. And the king of Syria wanted to get the king of Israel. And so he would plan these ambushes and these attacks. The problem was every time he planned these ambushes and attacks, the Lord would let Elisha know about it. And then Elisha would let the king of Israel know about it. And then the king of Israel would circumvent the situation entirely. And so the king of, Israel, of, the king of Syria was going crazy trying to get Israel. And it wasn't working. And so finally, he asks, what is going on here? And his, his servants tell him, well, what happens is that every time you say something quietly in your bedroom, Elisha hears about it, and Elisha tells the king, and that's what happens. And he says, well, where is this Elisha? Let's get him. And so he sends his forces. They surround the town where Elisha was staying. And Elisha has uh, this guy that, that comes with him. He's kind of like a sidekick. And the sidekick is looking out the windows, looking at all these armies coming in and pressing in on this town. And he's throwing up in his hands and he's saying, Elisha, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And here's what Elisha says. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them away to Samaria. And the story goes on from there. There's interesting things that happen. You would expect that Elisha would then uh, surround them with the armies of Israel and murder them all. But that's not what he does. He sees them in their weakness and in their blindness. And when God opens their eyes, he says, here I am. And he tells the king of Israel, let's feed them. And they put on a big banquet for all these enemies of the people of Israel. Why is Elisha able to do that? Because he has the armies of the Lord God, the Lord of heaven and earth, of all the heavenly armies. He has them right there with him, surrounding him and protecting him. And if that was true for Elisha, you know it's true for us as well. We are not fighting against these principalities and powers, these authorities, these rulers. We're not fighting against them on our own by ourselves. We're fighting against them with one another as the body of Christ, the church, and with all the heavenly armies fighting with us. The battle is real, but those who are with us are far more than those who are against us. And so we come to this notion of the armor of God. What is Paul talking about here? Well, if you look on the cover of your bulletins, I've given you a picture of what traditional Roman army armor looks like. And so you can get a, a picture in your head of what Paul might have been thinking about as he says these things. But he's also drawing on a number of Old Testament passages, especially in Isaiah, that say very similar things. 
And the, the metaphor here is not rigid, it's, it's flexible, but the idea is that these spiritual practices, these pieces of theology, serve as armor for us and deflect the attacks of the enemy. And so it's important to be aware of this, and it's important to put on this whole armor of God each and every day. So what is this armor and how do we use it? Well, first of all, we see in verse 14, Paul talking about the belts of truth. The belt of truth. Satan is a liar. And this is something that we see from the very first depictions of him as the crafty serpent in the book of Genesis. Satan likes to twist truth and turn it into a lie. He likes to outright boldface lie to us. And particularly to lie about God and his attitudes and affections for us. And so the belt of truth is the reminder of the true nature of things. It's the reminder that God is truth and that all truth comes from him. And the best weapon against lies and deception is always truth. We need to envelop ourselves with truth to combat the lies of our culture and the lies of the enemy who tries to tell us that we aren't good enough and that God could never love us. It's just not true. The truth is God loves you more than you can possibly know. And that he desires good things for you. And we find this truth in his word, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Secondly, we find the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is important because unrighteousness gives the enemy a foothold in our lives. It gives him a foothold to accuse us. And even the name Satan itself means the accuser. That's one of the ways Satan likes to work against us, is by accusing us. And the way he accuses us is of our unrighteousness. He says, look at all these bad things that you've done. Look at all this sin that clings to you. God could never love you because of that. God could never forgive you because of that. Again, it's lies. But a great defense against the accuser is righteousness. And so when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we're first and foremost putting on the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us. Because none of us is righteous in our own strength. None of us stands before God on our own righteous. But when we are clothed with Christ, when we are in Christ, we stand as righteous before God because Jesus is righteous. And he has sacrificed himself for us on the cross. And he has given his righteousness to us. And so we're able to stand before God righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. We can stand against the lies of the accuser and say, I am righteous because Christ has made me righteous. He has declared me righteous before God. But our righteousness is also the holiness that comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit growing in us. The more we're Christians, the more we walk with the Lord, the more we put on the whole armor of God, the more we walk in the fruit of the Spirit, we become righteous ourselves as well. Not perfectly righteous, that doesn't come until we die and go to be with the Lord, but we increase in our righteousness, and that decreases the accuser's ability to accuse us. And so we need to put on this breastplate of righteousness. First of all, the righteousness of Christ, but also seeking to walk in holiness ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit. Next, we see the shoes, which are the readiness given by the gospel of peace in verse 15. 
The Revised English Bible translates this verse a little bit differently. It says, Let the shoes on your feet be the gospel of peace to give you a firm footing. And the gospel is our firm footing. We can stand firm in the gospel because the gospel undergirds all that we do. It's the message that God does love us and that he has saved us by Jesus Christ. We see that passage that Jesus tells us about the man who builds his house on the rock versus the one who builds his house on shifting sand. And when we build our lives on the gospel of peace, we are on firm ground. Ground that's not going to give way underneath us. It's dependable. It's reliable. And so that's what it means when we put on as shoes the, right, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And then we see the shield of faith, which extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. Isn't that a great image? You see these, these flaming darts coming from the enemy, and then you imagine the shield of faith putting them all out, just pinging off as though they're toothpicks instead of flaming darts. In Roman armor, uh, one of the things that they had was this, this shield, and it was an incredible piece of technology in the Roman army, because if you look at, I think it's on this bulletin cover, yes, if you look at the, the shape of that shield, uh, it's sort of this, this, this curved shape, and it's long, and what the Roman army could do is they could interlock their shields and make a roof over their head and a front plate uh, in front of them, and they could merge together and basically become like a, like a tank, a human-powered tank with this armor plated all around them, defending them on every side, and they could march forward towards an enemy and deflect all these darts. But they could even deflect flaming darts. There used to be flaming arrows in a lot of battles because they would take these shields, which were made out of leather, and before the battle, they would often douse them with water. And that way, when the flaming darts would come, the flames would be put out instantly because of the water that was soaked up into the leather of the shield. So that's what a shield did in the Roman army. How does the shield of faith extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one? When the enemy is sowing seeds of doubt and seeds of mistrust, our faith in God and his power to save go a long way to help us make it through those situations. One commentator says that take up the shield of faith thus suggests a deliberate and positive holding on to the God revealed in the gospel. Firm and resolute dependence on the Lord which quenches the fiery attempts of the enemy to harm and to spread panic. Our faith in God, our faith in his ability to save us is a very important defense against all the attacks of the enemy. Because when you feel attacked, you feel hopeless and helpless. But with faith in God, we are anything but hopeless or helpless. Because God is mighty to save. And he is the one in whom we can put our trust reliably and dependably. Then we see the helmet of salvation to protect your head. Charles Hodge, who's a, a, a famous Presbyterian commentator and, and pastor, wrote, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he or she is saved. Think about that. If you know you're saved, if you know that you stand righteous before God and that you get to spend all of eternity with him and that you get to experience abundant life here and now, because of what Jesus has done for you, there's really nothing they can do to you, right? 
There's nothing the enemy can do to you that could take that away from you. You are secure in Christ. And so even if someone were to take your life, you stand righteous before God and spend eternity with him. There's nothing to lose there. Seriously, it's all positive when you have the helmet of salvation protecting your head. Then we see, finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 17. Similar to the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the best source of truth is the Scriptures. It is God's Word written to us. And so when we are doubting, when we're wondering if God is really speaking to us or if the things he's telling us are really from him or just something that we ate, we can look in the truth of his word and we can see truth, unchangeable truth, truth that has been written down for thousands of years and passed down from generation to generation reliably and faithfully. This is God's word to us. And we need to know God's word in and out because it's filled with this truth and it can combat the lies of the enemy. And so when the enemy tries to lie to us, just like he tried to lie to Jesus in his temptations, Jesus each and every time combated the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. It's a powerful weapon against the enemy. And so we need to know God's word. We need to memorize God's word. We need to hide God's word in our, in our hearts because when we do, it is ready to be used as a weapon against the enemy. The more scripture you memorize, the more readily God can use it in your life. And the more readily God can use it as you minister to others. But you need to remember for a moment that this is the only offensive weapon that's listed in this armor. It's the only offensive weapon. Everything else is a defensive piece of armor. The sword of truth is an offensive weapon. And so we have to remember who the enemy is. The enemy was stated right at the very beginning of this passage. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to be careful that when we use this as the sword, we're using it as the sword against the right enemy, against Satan. Because when we use this to club each other over the head, or to club our culture over the head, we come across as haters. We come across as bigoted. We come across as all kinds of nasty things that we don't want to be. This is a weapon against Satan. It's not a weapon against people. It's a tool that we can use in ministering to people. And we need to share the truth that's in here with people. But we need to speak that truth in love, not as a war club. And so this can be a war club against Satan. Go war club all you want to against Satan. But when you're using this in the context of ministering to others or against the culture trying to uh, enlighten people about the lies that our culture is, is telling us all the time, we need to do that in a spirit of gentleness. Still the truth. We need to be firm in the truth. But we need to do so with a spirit of gentleness and love. Not clubbing one another over the head with the scriptures. But definitely go ahead and club Satan all you want to. He can go for it. And finally, we see prayer. After Paul tells us about this whole armor of God, he then puts the whole thing in the context of prayer. (coughs) 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The weapon that we have as Christians is prayer. The defense that we have as Christians is prayer. We know that we're surrounded by the heavenly armies. We know that we have nothing to fear because God is in control and God is with us as his people. But we need to be on our knees. That's the first place we need to go. Unfortunately, prayer is often an afterthought for us. It's the last place we go. We try and figure it out. We try and read books about it. We try and watch YouTube videos about it. We try and discern the the problem and think about it real, real hard. Then we take some action and try some different things. And then we stop and we say, oh yeah, I could pray about that. Let's let prayer be the first tool that we use, the first place that we go. Not discounting education, which is important, or skill, or any of the things that we can apply to situations. Those are all good, and God can use them. But let's go first to prayer. Because prayer puts us in touch with the one who knows all the answers to every problem. Prayer puts us in touch with the one who controls all the heavenly armies. You can't do it on your own but God can do it in you and through you and through us as his church and through the heavenly armies that he controls. When we think about the goal, the end of all things, Paul tells us a little something about that at the very beginning of this letter to the Ephesians. He starts out by saying in verse 10, we'll start in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where we're going. That's the cosmic plan. That's where God wants all things to be summed up. He wants to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. All of it united in Christ. And we are called as a church to participate in this by drawing those who don't know Jesus into a saving love and relationship with him. Taking disparate things that have been torn apart and rent asunder and drawing them into the fullness of Christ. Uniting people in the body of Christ. Participating in this uniting thing that God is doing throughout all time and across all of history towards the ultimate consummation of this wedding between Christ and his church. Christ is drawing all things to the fullness of himself. This is important kingdom work, and the enemy is not going to like it as we advance. We've seen it over and over again. And there are certainly things that God calls us to do, but the greatest advances of God's kingdom come through the warfare that happens on our knees. We need to be in the world. We need to be sharing our faith with others, We need to be doing food giveaways and doing the other kinds of ministry that God calls us to. But first and foremost, we need to be doing the work of prayer. Asking God for his direction, for his guidance, for his counsel, for his provision. Asking him to watch over us and to direct our steps. 
Because we can plan all we want to on our own strength, and it will always come to nothing. But when we plan based on God's direction, amazing things happen. We need to be regularly on our knees praying for this church and for our mission together. We need to pray for favor with those who are not yet saved in this community, in Clay County, in Jacksonville, and beyond. We need to pray for more laborers for the harvest, more people to come alongside us and to reach out into these communities to draw people into God's love. We need to pray for God's provision for this church. Provision that we might be able to carry out the mission that he's called us to. We need to pray that God would show us exactly the people that he desires for us to reach. And we need to pray for all the saints, as it says in verse 18. All the fellow Christians around the world who are laboring with us in this important work of God's mission. Going into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching people to obey all that God has commanded them. This is our mission as a church, the church worldwide and this church, Good Samaritan Anglican Church. And finally, I need your prayers as the rector of this church, just as much as Paul needed the prayers of the Ephesians church. He says, And pray also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Thank God I'm not in chains. I would be in chains if I had to be, but thank God I'm not that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so please pray for me, and please pray for the other leaders in this church, for Deacon Stephen, for Mother Carrie, for our vestry, for all the people who lead us, because we need to be praying for each other and we need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for our bishop and for the leaders of our diocese, that we might be able to move forward in the mission that God has called us to, that we might be able to boldly proclaim this gospel in Clay County and to the ends of the earth. We can do it, but we can't do it our own. It has to be done in God's strength, and so it has to be done on our knees. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the defense of the whole armor that you give us. We thank you for the righteousness that comes from you, for your gospel of peace. We thank you for your word, which is the truth. We thank you for the gift of prayer and the knowledge that you are always near to us and that you always hear when we call out to you. We pray for your defense by your heavenly armies, that you would surround and protect this church and protect the people and the families in this congregation. We pray that you would help us to move forward in mission that you'd help us to stand firm against the enemy, that you'd help us to defeat the lies and the accusations that he throws against us. We pray that you would unbind and loose people from the bondage to sin and prepare their hearts to receive the gospel of your truth. Draw people into relationship with you, and we pray that you would use us mightily to that end. We offer ourselves to you, Lord. Do with us what you will. Guide and direct us 
please provide for us and send us forward in your mission. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.